Chapter 20. Coffee Houses and Doss Houses. Another phrase gone glimmering, shorn of romance and tradition, and all that goes to making phrases worth keeping. For me, henceforth, Coffee House will possess anything but an agreeable connotation. Over on the other side of the world, the mere mention of the word was sufficient to conjure up whole crowds of its historic frequenters, and to send trooping through my imagination endless group of wits and dandies, pamphleteers and bravados and bohemians of Grub Street. But here, on this side of the world, alas and alack, the very name is a misnomer. Coffee House. A place where people drink coffee. <laughs> Not at all. You can't obtain coffee in such a place for love or money. True. You may call for coffee, and you will have brought you something in a cup purporting to be coffee, and you will taste it, and you will be disillusioned, for coffee it certainly is not. And what is true of the coffee is true of the coffee house. Working men in the main frequent the place, and with greasy, dirty places which they are, without one thing about them to cherish decency in man or put self-respect into him, tablecloths and napkins are unknown. A man eats in the midst of the debris left by his predecessor, and he dribbles his own scraps about him and on the floor. In rush times and in such places, I positively waded through the muck and mess that covered the floor, and I managed to eat because... Well, I was abominably hungry and capable of eating anything. This seems to be the normal condition of the working man, from the zest with which he addressed himself to the board. Eating is a necessity, and there are no frills about it. He brings in with him a primitive voraciousness that I am confident carries away with him a fairly healthy appetite. When you see such a man on his way to work in the morning... Order a pint of tea, which is no more tea than it is ambrosia. Pull a hunk of dry bread from his pocket and wash the one down with the other. Then depend upon it. That man has not the right sort of stuff in his belly, nor enough of the wrong sort of stuff to fit him for his day's work. And further depend upon it, he had a thousand of his kind will not turn out the quantity or quality of work that a thousand men who have eaten heartily of meat and potatoes and drunk coffee that is coffee would do. As a vagrant in the hobo of a Californian jail, I have been served better food and drink than the London workman receives in his coffee houses. While as an American labourer I have eaten a breakfast for twelve pence, such as the British labourer would not dream of eating. Of course, he will pay only three or four pence for this, which is, however, as much as I paid, for I would be earning six shillings to his two or two and a half. And on the other hand, though, and in return, I would turn out an amount of work in the course of the day that would put to shame the amount that he turned out. So there are two sides to it. The man with the high standard of living will always do more work and better than the man with the low standard of living. There is a comparison which sailormen make between the English and the American merchant services. In an English ship, they say, 
It's poor grub, poor pay, and easy work. And in an American ship, it's good grub, good pay, and hard work. And this is applicable to the working populations of both countries. The ocean, greyhounds have to pay for speed and steam, and so does the workman. But if the workman is not able to pay for it, he will not have the speed and the steam. That's all. The proof of it is when the English workman comes to America. He will lay more bricks in New York than he will in London, and still more bricks in St. Louis, where he is more bricks where he gets to San Francisco, because his standard of living has been rising all the time. And by the way, the San Francisco bricklayer receives 20 shillings a day, and at present is on strike for 24 shillings. Early in the morning, along the streets frequented by workmen on the way to work, many women sit on the sidewalk with sacks of bread beside them. No end of workmen purchase these, and they eat them as they walk along. They don't even wash the dry bread down with a tea to be obtained for a penny in the coffee-houses. It's incontestable that a man is not fit to begin his day's work on a meal like that. And it's equally incontestable that the loss will fall upon his employer and upon the nation. For some time now, statesmen have been crying, Wake up, England! It would show more hard-headed common sense if they changed the tune to Feed up, England! Not only is the worker poorly fed, but he is filthily fed. I've stood outside a butcher shop, and I've watched a horde of speculative housewives turning over the trimmings and the scraps and the shreds of beef and mutton, dog meat in the States. I would not vouch for the clean fingers of these housewives either, no more than I would vouch for the cleanliness of the single rooms in which many of them and their families lived. And yet they raked and poured and scraped the mess about in their anxiety to get the worth from their coppers. I kept my eye on one particularly offensive-looking bit of meat and followed it through the clutches of over twenty women, till it fell to the lot of a timid-appearing little woman whose butchers bluffed her into taking it. All day long this heap of scraps was added to and taken away from, the dust and the dirt of the street falling upon it, flies settling on it, and the dirty fingers turning it over and over. The costers wheel loads of specked and decaying fruit around in their barrows all day. Very often they store it in their one living and sleeping room for the night. There it is exposed to the sickness and the disease, the effulgia, the vile exhalations of overcrowded and a rotten life, and the next day it's just carted about again to be sold. The poor worker of the East End never knows what is to eat, which might be good or wholesome, or meat or fruit which might be good for him. In fact, he rarely eats meat or fruit at all, while the skilled workman has got nothing to boast of in the way of what he eats. Judging from the coffee-houses, which is a fair criterion, they never know in all their lives what tea, coffee or cocoa actually tastes like. The slops and the water witcheries of the coffee-houses, varying only in sloppiness and witchery, never even approximate or even suggest what you and I are accustomed to drink as tea and coffee. A little incident comes to me connected with a coffee house not far from Jubilee Street in the Mile End Road. Can you let me have some of this daughter? 
Any then, yeah? I don't mind. I've not a bite to eat this blessed day, and him that faint. She was an old woman, clad with a decent black rags, and in her hand she held a penny. The one she had addressed as daughter was a careworn woman of forty, proprietress and waitress of the house. I waited, possibly as anxiously as the old woman, to see how the appeal would be received. It was four in the afternoon, and she did look faint and sick. The woman hesitated an instant, then brought a large plate of stewed lamb and young peas. I was eating a plate of it myself, and it's my judgment that the lamb was mutton, and that the peas might have been younger uh, without being youthful. However, the point is, the dish was sold at sixpence, and the proprietors gave it for a penny, demonstrating anew the old truth that the poor are the most charitable. The old woman, profuse in her gratitude, took a seat on the other side of the narrow table and ravenously attacked the smoking stew. We ate steadily and silently, the pair of us, when suddenly, and explosively, and always gleefully, she cried out, "'He sold a box of matches! Yes!' he confirmed. "'If anything is greater than more explosive than glee than that, "'He sold a box of matches! That's how he got the penny! Yeah!' "'You must be getting along in years,' I suggested. Seventy-four yesterday,' she replied, and returned with gusto to her plate. "'Blimey! I'd like to do something for the old girl that would, that I would, but this is my first time I've had today,' the young fellow alongside me volunteered. "'And I've only had this because I happened to make an odd shilling washing out, Lord Lummy, I don't know how many pots.' "'Yeah,' "'No work at my own trade for six weeks,' he said further, in reply to my question. "'Nothing, but odd jobs, a blessed long way between them, too.' "'One meets all sorts of adventures in coffee-houses. "'I won't soon forget a cockney Amazon in a place near Trafalgar Square "'to whom I tendered a sovereign when paying my score. "'And by the way, one is supposed to pay before one begins to eat.' and if he be poorly dressed, he is compelled to pay before he eats. The girl bit the gold piece between her teeth, rang it on the counter, and then looked at me in my rags witheringly up and down. "'Where'd you find it?' she at length demanded. "'Some mug left it on the table when he went out, eh, don't you think?' I retorted. "'What's your game, then, eh?' she queried, looking at me calmly in the eyes. "'I'll make some,' quoth I. She sniffed superstitiously, and gave me the change in small silver, and I had my revenge by biting and wringing every piece of it. "'I'll give you apony for another lump of sugar in that tea,' I said. "'I'll see you in hell first, came the retorted courteously. Also she amplified the retort courteously in diverse, vivid and unprintable ways. I've never had much talent for repartee, but she knocked silly what out little I had, and I gulped down my tea, a beaten man, while she gloated after me even after I'd passed out into the street. While 300,000 people of London live in a one-room tenement, 
and 900,000 are illegally and viciously housed. 38,000 more are registered as living in common lodging houses, known in the vernacular as DOS houses. There are many kinds of DOS houses, but in one thing they're all alike. From the filthy little ones to the monster big ones, paying five cents, blatantly blauded by smug middle-class men who know but one thing about them, and that one thing is their uninhabitableness. By this I don't mean that the roofs leak or the walls are drafty. What I do mean is that life in them is degrading and unwholesome. The poor man's hotel, they're often called, but the phrase is a caricature. Not to possess a room to oneself in which someone can sit alone, to be forced out of bed willy-nilly first thing in the morning, to engage and pay anew for a bed each night and never have any privacy. Well, surely that is the mode of existence quite different from that of what you would call hotel life. This must not be considered a sweeping condemnation of the big private and municipal lodging houses and workmen's homes. Far from it. They have remedied many of the atrocities intendant upon the irresponsible small doss house, and they give the workman more for his money than he ever received before. But that does not make them as habitable or wholesome as the dwelling place of a man that should be who does his work in the world. The little private doss houses, as a rule, are just unmitigated horrors. I've slept in them, and I know. But let me pass them by and confine myself to the bigger and the better ones. Not far from Middlesex Street in Whitechapel, I entered such a house, a place inhabited almost entirely by working men. The entrance was, by way of a flight of stairs, descending from the sidewalk to what was properly the cellar of the building. And here were two large and gloomily lighted rooms in which men cooked and ate. I had intended to do some cooking myself, but the smell of the place stole away my appetite, or rather arrested it from me. So I contented myself with watching other men cook and eat. One workman, home from work, sat down opposite me at the rough wooden table and began his meal. A handful of salt on the not-over-clean table constituted his butter. Into it he dipped his bread, mouthful by mouthful, and washed it down with tea for a big mug. A piece of fish completed his bill of fare. He ate silently, looking neither to the right nor to the left, nor across at me. And here and there, at the various tables, other men were eating, just as silently. In a whole room, there was hardly a note of conversation. A feeling of gloom pervaded the ill-lighted place. Many of them sat and brooded over the crumbs of their repast, and made me wonder, as child Roland wondered, what evil they had done that they should be punished so. From the kitchen came the sound of a more genial life, and I ventured into the range where the men were cooking. But the smell I had noticed on Erling entering earlier, and the rising was even stronger here. 
and a kind of nausea drove me into the street for fresh air. On my return I paid fivepence for a cabin. I took my receipt, for the same in the form of a huge brass cheque, and went upstairs to the smoking room. Here, a couple of small billiard tables and several checkerboards were being used by the young working men, who they waited in relays for their turn at the games, while many men were sitting around smoking and reading and mending their clothes. The young men were hilarious. The old men were gloomy. In fact, there were two types of men. There's the cheerful and the sodden or blue, and age seemed to determine the classification. But no more than the two cellar rooms did this room convey the remotest suggestion of home. Certainly there could be nothing like it at the, about home in any way that you and me or would know what home really was. On the walls were the most preposterous and insulting notices regulating the conduct of the guests, and at ten o'clock the lights were put out and nothing remained but bed, and this was gained by descending again to the cellar. I surrendered the brass cheque to a burly doorkeeper, and by climbing a long flight of stairs into the upper regions, I went to the top of the building and down again passing several floors filled with sleeping men. The cabins, so-called, were the best accommodation. Each cabin allowed space for a tiny bed and a room alongside it in which to undress. The bedding was clean, and with neither it nor the bed do I find any fault. But there was no privacy about it, no being alone here. To get an adequate idea of a floor filled with cabins, you really have to magnify a layer of the pasteboard pigeonholes of an egg crate till each pigeonhole is seven feet in height and otherwise properly dimensioned, and then place the magnified layer on the floor of a large barn-like room. And there you have it. There are no ceilings to the pigeonholes, the walls are thin, and the snores from all the sleepers and every move and turn of your nearest neighbour come plainly into your ears. And this cabin is yours only for a little while, because in the morning, out you go. You can't put your trunk in it, or come and go when you like, or lock the door behind you, or anything of that sort. In fact, there is no door at all. It's only a doorway. If you care to remain a guest in this poor man's hotel, well, you have to put up with that, and with prison regulations which impress upon you constantly that you are nobody, with little soul of your own, and less to say about it. Now, I contend that the least a man who does his day's work should have is a room to himself, where he can lock the door and be safe in his possessions, where he can sit down and read by a window or look out, where he can come and go as he pleases, and where he can accumulate a few personal belongings other than those which he carries about with him on his back and in his pockets, and where he can hang up pictures of his mother or his sister or his sweetheart or ballet dancers or bulldogs as his heart listeth. In short, one place of his own on the earth of which he could say, this is mine, my castle. The world stops at the threshold, and here I am lord and master. Well, he will be a better citizen, this man, and he'll do a better day's work if he has such a thing. I stood on one floor of the poor man's hotel, and I listened. 
I went from bed to bed and I looked at the sleepers. They were young men, from twenty to forty, most of them. Old men can't afford the working man's home. They go to the workhouse. But I looked at the young men, scores of them. They were not bad-looking fellows. Their faces were made for women's kisses and their necks for women's arms. They were lovable, as men are lovable, and they are capable of love. A woman's touch redeems and softens, and they're needed by such a redemption and softening instead of each day growing harsher and harsher. And I wondered where these women were, and I heard a harlot's ginny laugh, Lehman Street, Waterloo Road, Piccadilly, the Strand, answered me, and I knew exactly where they were. Thank you.